You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Good morning. My name is Rob. Uh, just want to join my voice to the other pastors and say welcome uh, to Grace Church on a very special day at being Orphan Sunday, which is just like Craig said, a very special day for us. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Galatians, you're in for a treat because uh, the passage we're going to look at today, many theologians believe is uh, the summary of the entire book. So, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, while you're turning there, getting your device ready, we're going to be talking about discovering our inheritance uh, in adoption as being adopted, as, as Craig just mentioned, as, as we prayed. And while you turn there, I want to share a story that kind of went viral during COVID of a homeless woman named Kathy Boone. Here's how one writer described the situation. A homeless woman on the streets of Astoria, Oregon, died last year having never collected a penny of nearly $900,000 fortune she inherited when her mother passed away in 2016. Kathy Boone was the sole heir to $884,407, but she died broke in January 2020 after authorities took out advertisements in the local newspaper, messaged her on Facebook, emailed family members, and tried to reach Kathy by phone. A private investigator was even hired to try to find her, but even that attempt failed. Probate court documents show that she was aware of the inheritance, but it's unclear why she never claimed it. One friend said it just didn't seem to make any sense at all. That money was just sitting there, and she needed help in the worst way. That's a story of tragedy, and it's easy for us to see the tragedy in that. It almost could be made into a dark, tragic comedy. But what's easy for us to see in the lives of other people is difficult for us to imagine that we could ever be in Kathy's predicament, that we could ever have an inheritance like that, have a need of that measure and that degree, and live as if we didn't have it at all. And that's why it's even shocking, probably, for me to stand here today and share that not only are we similar to Kathy Boone, we are all Kathy Boone in the room, we are far worse often than she. For we have access to a far greater inheritance in Christ and often live as if it never existed at all. And my burden today is that we would become aware, that you would become aware, maybe for some, for the very first time, of discovering your inheritance, that you would discover your, your need of it, that you become aware both of it and, and your need of it, and that you would take the next step and claim it. That you would come forward and claim it. And like a private investigator, just imagine God tracking you down right now today to convince you that something belongs to you. That you've inherited something and it's yours for the taking. And that you need it 
in the worst of ways today. There's some area of your life where today's truth is going to connect with the need that you have in the worst of ways. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Galatians 4, 4 through 7, while we get the mics figured out there. And uh, uh, there we go. It's, it's getting a little better there. So I'm going to read this and then pray, and then we're going to get started here. Let's, let's read Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord, as we have just read your word, and as we enter into a time of meditating it, meditating on it, and me preaching from it, Lord, we ask that you would renew us, that you would help us, that you would encourage us, and that you would lead us and direct us to this great inheritance that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what does the Bible say about our inheritance? Well, I, I think this passage points to at least three things, three actions that God takes, and it's sequential, and it's important because it has a starting point and a next phrase and a next phrase, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. These three actions are, in verses 4 through 5, that we are pursued by God, and in verse 6, it indicates that we are sealed to God, and in verse 7, that we're recreated in God. There's a lot of prepositions there that I just shared, and there's a lot of prepositions in this passage. A lot of so that's and for's, and those things are very, very important as you understand the logic and the flow of what the Apostle Paul is saying to the churches in Galatia. Well, first, he describes our inheritance as us being pursued by God. Look at verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God took initiative. God moved forward with an action that started with him, and he, he, he's the first mover in this whole thing by sending forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. When that phrase, the fullness of time had come, there's a lot of ink that has been uh, spilled about what does that mean, the fullness of time, because there's so many different kingdoms taking shape at that time. The Roman Empire uh, basically ushering the Pax Romana because they controlled everything. And there's just a lot of things coming together all at the same time. And those things are very, very important. But a, a simple way of thinking about the fullness of time is that at just the right time, at exactly the right time, God showed up in a special way. Do you know that in your life, any time God has shown up, it's been in a special way, and it's been at just the right time. For some people today, God is going to show up with a truth, and it's going to be a special truth he's going to want you to grab hold of today as I'm sharing this, and it's just the right time. It's always the right time when God shows up. Well, here it says that at the fullness of time, at just the right time, God took initiative, sent forth his son, 
born of woman. Now, that's a very interesting way to start, but it's, it's very crucial to understanding everything that comes after this. When the apostle Paul says born of woman, this is the theological concept of the incarnation, a.k.a. Christmas. We are, we are now in sort of Christmas season. When you give announcements about adults' Christmas choirs, uh, you're there. When you see lights starting to come up, uh, even though it's happening before Thanksgiving increasingly these days, and pre- putting pressure on me to hurry up and get my lights on, I don't know when that's going to happen, but it, it's like Christmas season is upon us. Well, uh, I, this wasn't planned, but welcome to sort of an Advent sermon because what, what the Apostle Paul points us to is this incarnation, this Christmas moment, this, this moment where fully God becomes fully man, where the eternal Son takes on flesh, bypassing Adam, by the way, in order to completely save us. That's what he's saying when he says, born of woman. Now, our, our guest today our guests, our members, guests, you don't get this, but if you're a member joining the church today, you're going to get this wonderful book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. And it is just a fantastic book. I think that's what we're giving. We, we, we historically have given that gift. Um, and so in his book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer uh, repeats what the Apostle Paul is saying about how important it is to start with, with the, the born of woman idea. He says, more than Good Friday... Uh, event of crucifixion, even more than Easter Sunday resurrection, the Christmas event of incarnation is what he says, the supreme mystery of the gospel where the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. He says, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Nothing that you have ever read in fiction or watched on a screen that was fictional has anything on the fantastic truth of the incarnation. Packer was not alone in this observation. The same point was stressed by C.S. Lewis who said this, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness, therefore, credibility of the particular miracles depends on the relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. Here's what he's saying. This grand miracle is the source of all the other miracles or the the proof of all, and they're all connected to this starting point of the incarnation of Christ. Packer completes his thought in his book, Knowing God, saying this way, the incarnation itself is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else in the New Testament. I would go on to say it makes sense of everything in the Old Testament as well, as I've talked to people uh, through the years, who struggle at various miracles as they appear in the Old Testament. What of, you know, oceans parting? Uh, well, that's nothing compared to the incarnation. Well, what does it make sense of here in this passage? Well, notice, he's born of woman. That's the miracle of incarnation. Then he goes on in verse 4, born under the law. So the Son of God 
in order to keep the law, we are under the law, and we have failed to keep the law. We are also born under the law. We're born under the law, we failed to keep the law. We need someone to come under the law where we are and keep the law for us. Nobody has ever kept the law. You've never kept the law. Well, here, Christ is born of a woman, and in that miracle of incarnation, it sets off the next miracle, born under the law, where he does the miracle of a perfect life. He lives perfectly, keeps the law perfectly, in order to, notice that two word, that is a very important preposition, to redeem, that word means to buy back, to purchase back those under the law. So we're under the law. Christ submits himself under the law, born of woman, miracle of incarnation, miracle of a perfect life, to buy back us who are under the law in the miracle of his death and his resurrection. Do you see how one miracle leads to another miracle leads to another miracle? So he's just described multiple miracles in one breath. And it's amazing. I've already quoted from Packer. I'm going to continue. He says, it's no wonder, it's no wonder if fresh acts of creative power marked his coming into this world and his life in it and his exit from it. It is not strange that he, the author of life, should rise from the dead. That's an amazing statement. He's, it's not strange if he's the God-man, fully God and fully man, 100%, man, 100% God and 100% man, coming into the world, coming under the law to keep the law for us. If all those miracles exist, it, it shouldn't be so strange that he dies and is resurrected. After all, he is the author of life. And fresh acts of creative power always come from him. Well, why is this so important to us today on Orphan Sunday? Well, it's important because you hear this. This could, could almost sound like an overstatement, but the text says it. You are both the purpose of the supreme miracle and a much lesser miracle at the same time. As you are hearing this today, I didn't overstate it because I'm going to prove it in verse 5. You're both the purpose of the supreme miracle and a much lesser miracle all at the same time. Look at verse 5. Very important. That could be an overstatement if the word so that was not there. All of this, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Verse 5, so that we, that's you and I, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the first miracle of incarnation leads to the next miracle of a perfect life, leads to the next miracle of a perfect death and resurrection, leading to our miracle of adoption. So that you and I might be adopted and come into the family of God, be connected eternally to the triune God. Now, adoption means to be brought home to a family at great cost. And what this teaches us is that it answers the question of not only how can God love sinners, which is important for you to understand that you are a sinner under the law, unable to keep it, but even more personal than that, how can God love me, a sinner? How, how can God think on me and 
have thoughts of me and love me in an adopted kind of way? And this is a very important question. And, and I believe that for many today, the Lord wants to move close to your heart and bring an assurance to you of his love because God loves to assure us of his love. He loves to do it. In fact, verse 6 talks about it, but just pause for, for a moment because we're not going to get there just yet. He loves to assure us, but he's equally concerned, I believe, that we understand the grounds of our assurance. The grounds of our assurance is his love grounded in the truth that follows a logic of the greater to the lesser. If God did this big thing in the incarnation, he can surely do this smaller thing. If God can come in the, the person of Jesus and live a perfect life, he can surely apply that love to you in your adoption. Follow that. If Christmas happened, then Good Friday happened. And if Good Friday happened, then Easter happened. And if Easter happened, adopting me can happen. And if adopting me can happen, he can provide for me over and over again in my life. This is how we are assured of God's everlasting love for us. His love doesn't end. It starts, but it never ends. It's everlasting. And listen, if God tips the first domino of his incarnation, every other domino falls and keeps on falling over and over again. Now, I don't play dominoes because my math is not that fast. But I like to stack dominoes. And I like to eat dominoes. As a kid, I just used to watch, you know, those, those videos of the dominoes just going like crazy. And so I would just pull out the box, boxes of dominoes that I had, and I would just stack them up. And it was just so enjoyable to just stack those dominoes up, tip over the first one, and just let them fall. And the saddest thing is when you get to the end of the box. You get to the end of the box, and there's no more dominoes. But as I recall, occasionally, somebody would go into the back of the closet and there'd be another box of dominoes. What this truth tells us is that the pursuit of God towards us has a primary starting domino in the incarnation and then in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but never a final one. He always has another box for you. It's endless. It's everlasting, and it's endless because we're adopted, and we're pursued by God. The pursuit has a starting point, but it has a, a never an ending point. He never stops pursuing us as a part of our inheritance. Let me continue to prove this by the next thing that Paul says, that we are sealed to God in verse 6. Number two, we're sealed to God. It's part of our inheritance. And it's also part of our assurance. Notice verse 6. And because you are sons, here's, here's the logic. God sent forth his son, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The grounds of our assurance is in verses 4 and 5, but the experience of it is in verse 6. And it all starts with God. 
God sent forth the Son, and now God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. What a glorious word. Not outside, into. Deeply experiential here. The Spirit of the Son of God comes very close to us. And this all happened when we believed. You say, when did that happen? Ephesians 1 tells us. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now sometimes when we hear the word sealed, we we kind of think of maybe a substance that bonds two things together. There is truth to that about the Holy Spirit. He, he does like bond us to God in a very special way. But, so it doesn't mean less than that, but there's way more than, than that is what this says. This, this isn't like a bonding seal. It's an identifying seal. It's like a branding mark used at that time that you would place on a letter or a contract or a, dark, a document. And sometimes it was done with a ring on some you know, putty or something. You would brand it and mark it and identify it. And what Ephesians tells us is that when the Spirit came to dwell in us, we were sealed, we were marked, we were branded as belonging now forever to God. It's this identifying mark. We belong to him. And he sees us all the time. And that's what the word sons means. Because you are sons. Because you are sons, God's done this. And don't lose track of that, ladies. It's sons and daughters. Because you were sons and daughters, God has marked you. And, and, and the mark is him. He's, he comes to dwell. He's, he's unafraid to indwell people who sin and mess up and screw up and have hang-ups all the time. He indwells us, and he himself is the mark. He doesn't leave a mark and go. He indwells us eternally forever, and he is always the mark, the identifying mark connected to us because we're sons and daughters. So that word, huioi, in this New Testament, actually, you don't see that. That's the, the Greek term, uh, special term. It's a legal word uh, used in adoption and inheritance laws. So Paul is intentionally using a, a legal word in verse 6. There's a, a legal dimension that God has marked us uh, and has documents in the courts of heaven of who belongs to him. And uh, that's, that's amazing. This, this word, sons, is one of Paul's favorite words to describe a Christian. In Romans 8, he says it this way. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. That legal term. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Hear that. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell into us and then the miracle of we cry out to God and say, Abba, Father. God mingles and marries his voice 
to your voice, helping you, assisting you, and calling out to God as your Father. And this cry helps us in our assurance. Jesus taught his disciples to say our Father. He himself, before he went to the cross, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, even said, Abba, Father. And now the promise of the Holy Spirit is that that same Spirit comes to dwell in us, never to leave us or forsake us. Charles Spurgeon, the old pastor, had a a lady come to him, and she was deeply, deeply troubled by her assurance. She just wasn't sure where she was at with God. Am I really saved? And so she came to Charles Spurgeon, and he asked her, well, describe what you do when you're in the pits of despair about this. She said, well, I cry to God, and I just say, Father, please give me this assurance And Charles Spurgeon said, go home and rest. You would never cry out to him as father if he hadn't put that cry in you first. The Spirit's cry in you is both the legal mark and evidence that we belong to him. Parents, you remember regularly, and some of you are going through this right now, the frustration of not knowing why your kid is crying, why your child is crying. Is it a hunger cry? Is it a tired cry? Is it an angry cry? Is it a diaper cry? You know what I'm talking about? I can remember many times just looking at Michelle saying, what is going on with this child? What is this cry? We don't understand what this, what this is. We don't know what to do with this. But our father recognizes our cries and never experiences that frustration. He never wonders. He, he never is frustrated by not knowing what it is that we cry about. He never shuts his ears to our cries. And he knows exactly what we cry about. Some of you are going, I don't know if I believe that. Well, Psalm 56, 8 says that you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. That's the Father's care and love for us. Revelation 5.8 says even more, before the lamb, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, are always before him. Not only does God collect our tears in bottles, which Charles Spurgeon said were like liquid prayers, but he also collects all of our prayers in golden bowls ever before him. There's never been a tear from your eyes that he has not collected and that is not constantly before him now. Some of you parents wonder what happened with all of those tears. Every single one of those tears is collected and is in a golden bowl before your Father in heaven. Nothing has been wasted. Nothing has been lost. He tracks all of it, and it's collected all of it, and recorded each one of your tears and each one of your prayers because of your inheritance, because you've been pursued by God and sealed to God. Well, we're not just pursued and sealed, we're recreated. We're, we're made new people. We're made with a new purpose. Look at verse 7. 
he concludes this in verse 7 with the phrase, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, so you just follow the logic there. God sent forth his son. God sent forth the spirit of his son, crying, Abba, Father, from our hearts. So we would understand in a new way today, in a fresh way today, that we're no longer a slave, like a servant of, of the house, but we are a son and daughter, a son and daughter. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is our inheritance. We're recreated people made heirs of God. So notice the contrast. No longer a slave, but a son. A, a, a servant can serve, but a son gets connection, gets rights and a family and gets loved in a unique and a special way. That's what it means to be heirs of God. And there's no middle ground here. It's not like you're, you're kind of a son. No, if you are a son in the inheritance, you are legally a son or you are not. And there is no middle ground. Uh, the New Testament talks a lot about this. This isn't either or. There's both ands a lot in scripture, but this is not one of them. This is an either or. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. In other words, it's gone. Your old identity, gone. The new has come. Behold, the new has come. New creation. Transferred from one domain and now put into and positioned in a new domain. That's why I'm using the phrase recreated in God. Adoption causes us to be recreated in God. And as an heir, I've been given new things, and you have too. And this is how I like to close. Consider, as an heir, three things that, that we all have in common. The, the first one is that we have rights. We have rights. Rights are given to an heir. If you're, if you're an heir of anything, you have legal rights to something. Um, one of my favorite stories of, of a president is JFK. JFK uh, was one of the first sitting presidents where the, the press would come in and they had to just get all these security checks and all of this and get past the Secret Service and, you know, snapping pictures and asking questions and they would just see the most powerful man in the world uh, go about his business. And then in the midst of that, John Jr. would run past all the people and climb up into the lap of the most powerful person in the world. There's this great photo that Time Life took. I wish I'd brought it. It's this great photo of John Jr. playing under the desk. Some of you have seen this. Playing under the desk, the resolute desk. The desk made by, by timbers of a warship that the Queen of England gave to the president in the 1800s, and every sitting president has sat at the resolute desk. And there's John Jr. playing under this desk. Literally, he opened up the door that Roosevelt had installed to, to conceal his, his weaknesses from polio. He's opened up the door, and he's playing at the bottom of the desk, at the feet of the most powerful person in the world, while John F. Kennedy has the weight of the world on top of the desk. And, and our, our rights that we have, because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and if we've received him and believed in his name, John 1, 12 tells us he gave the right. Because of our rights of our inheritance, we get to play at the feet 
of the king who rules the world. We have the right to do that. We have the right to his lap. We could call out Abba Father anytime we need it because we have that right. We, we also have privileges. We have a privilege. As, being an heir means you've got the privilege of something. Well, what is that? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us one privilege is just to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There's a lot of kingdoms right now being shaken, are they not? We are told that we have the privilege of receiving a kingdom that is untouchable, that is unshakable. We are heirs of God's kingdom, and our future is covered and secured. I'm at this stage in my life where, you know, while I'm watching golf, the retirement commercials come on, and I used to just hate those commercials, and I'm like listening in, and every one of those commercials is all about how I need to be working hard right now for a future life, for the future day, the good life. Life can be terrible now, but there's a good life coming if I do everything I can. Well, in the Bible, the good life is shalom. It's the, the life of, of connection with God and others and peace and wholeness. And uh, it, it's, it's the good life. But through adoption, the good life starts now. It starts the moment that we're connected to God as our Father. And there's this old hymn. And it says this. Some of you have heard this hymn before. Some of you have not. It's called, This is My Father's World. Anybody know this, this song? This is my Father's World. It ends like this. This is how the song ends. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. Our privilege is we can be glad in a day when every other kingdom is being shaken because we've received through our inheritance a kingdom that will never be shaken. And lastly, our responsibilities. An heir can sit on their hands and do nothing or they can advance the family name, and cause. And this is our responsibility because we're heirs. Heirs of God advance the kingdom of God and extend the good life and plunder enemy strongholds. This is why throughout the New Testament, we are called to go to the margins where people are and advance the kingdom. Bring the life to them. Bring the gospel to them. Care for them. Help them. Diane mentioned that there's needs right now. There's in DFW about 3,000 kids in foster care, 11,000 total. She did, she did some research, and 8,000 kids currently have homes. And let's just take a moment to celebrate that. Many, of, many believers have stepped into the, that cause, opened up their homes. 8,000 kids today out of 11,000 have, have a home and potentially a church, but 3,000 don't. And so... Churches, your churches in DFW cover that overnight. Well, if we just extend the good life, if we just extend our responsibility, advance the kingdom to them. Now, we know not, not everybody is called to foster or to adopt, but we can all play a part. Before leaving for India in 1793, William Carey, a famous missionary, told his friend, Andrew Fuller, 
I'll go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. I mean, that's a, just a great quote about missions, something so hard about moving to another culture, another country, is isolation and loneliness, and I just need, you know, it, it's such a hard calling. But the, the principle here is, is true of anything that is hard and difficult. Anytime God calls us to something that's hard and difficult, we need people around us to hold the rope. Whether that's I'm called to foster and adopt, whether that's I'm called to missions, whether I'm called to go on a church plant, we are all called to hold the rope. You may not be called to do it, but you can hold the rope. And when you leave here today, I want to encourage you to explore ways. Go talk to Diane about how you can grab the rope. Just say, what, what's one way? i got limited time, limited resources, but how can I grab the rope with Families of Hope? And if the band could come up, I'd like to close by talking to anybody in the room who you're either not a Christian, you're not a believer, or you're struggling with your belief. I wanna encourage you to take this passage, Galatians 4, 4 through 7, and just get, a, get away by yourself, get alone by yourself, and consider the paradigms that oftentimes we bring into the text. Maybe you've had a great experience with a father, and maybe you've had a horrible experience with a father. And that's not, those aren't helpful because God is a perfect father. He's not just a better version of your already great dad. He is a perfect father. And what if for you, you've never even thought about that? Maybe you've never really considered God as a perfect father. Jay Packer, same book, Knowing God, says, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God's, God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Have you ever, have you ever explored Christianity through the lens of the fatherhood of God. That's what I want to encourage you to do. What if God is a perfect father? And the last question I would ask you is if God is a perfect father and he made a way for anyone to come home to him through the cross, what holds you back? What are you waiting for? In this room, we are all prodigals who ran as far away from God as we could and by his grace, we came home to a father who we discovered still had an inheritance for us. Hear this. Your father, if by the spirit you call out to him by faith and you say, father, he still has an inheritance for you. 
So I just want to encourage you to, to rethink things in a deep way. Take time and, and, and put space in your life to rethink, to rethink things. As we even head into kind of this pre but real Advent season, let's consider that together. He's made a way to come home to Him and to explore and to discover our inheritance all over again. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.